You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Today's guest is Dr. Erica Engelstein, an electrophysiologist in the Rush University System for Health. Her clinical interests include evaluation and treatment of patients with suspected or documented arrhythmias, including catheter ablation of atrial fibrillation and ventricular tachycardia. Our discussion today will center around current atrial fibrillation care at Rush, along with current research around AFib and the ways to treat and monitor it. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Engelstein. Thank you for having me. Let's start our conversation today just to get a baseline of who the typical AFib patient is. Well, that's a very good question. There are a variety of patients. The the very typical patient um, in my practice um, has multiple risk factors for atrial fibrillation. Um, So we have to know those risk factors. And generally, those are patients who have either other cardiac conditions or are um, obese, have diabetes, have hypertension, have sleep apnea, are not particularly active. Um, So those are the the classic risk factors for atrial fibrillation. However, there is a subset of patients with atrial fibrillation that does not have those risk factors. Uh, We see young people as young as 20 or 25 years old uh, who have atrial fibrillation. Sometimes those patients have other underlying rhythm problems that causes or precipitates atrial fibrillation. Uh, We see young, healthy uh, women or men at any age with atrial fibrillation where there's no immediate identifiable cause for the atrial fibrillation. Um, So anybody can have atrial fibrillation. It even happens in high-performance athletes uh, who have what we call a high vagal tone sometimes. Perhaps one other subgroup to note is uh, our patients with so-called holiday heart after um, you know, a night out of drinking or celebrating or eating a little too much or drinking too much, you know, alcohol certainly is a big factor in precipitating atrial fibrillation. And perhaps I should mention lately that we have seen a number of patients with atrial fibrillation with no prior history who just went through a major infections like COVID or, or other uh, acute illnesses when we see these patients with atrial fibrillation. And do we have a sense uh, about how many people nationally have AFib? Well, atrial fibrillation is uh, the most common arrhythmia in our nation or in other developed nations. Um, it is considered sort of a lifestyle uh, rhythm problem and comes with a lot of um, comorbidities that are related to lifestyle or lifestyle changes. It's also um, an arrhythmia of the aging population. So as the population gets older, we do see more patients uh, with atrial fibrillation. So it's estimated that, you know, two and a half millions uh, of, of patients with atrial fibrillation um, are in, in the United States or are going to be in the United States by the year of 2025. And, and that amount is estimated to double within, within a few years, uh, given that we live longer. 
Um, it's also, we're seeing more patients with atrial fibrillation because we diagnose it more often. Now that everybody has uh, some kind of a smartphone or a smartwatch or something, um, the, we, we screen many more people, whether intentionally or unintentionally, for atrial fibrillation. So we do see more patients with atrial fibrillation than we did even 10 years ago. I know there's been some conversation within the electrophysiology world on when patients should come in for a consultation, should they have AFib. Can you provide some context on when patients should come in for a consultation with an electrophysiologist? Yes, absolutely. And and this has been, um, you know, I've been an electrophysiologist for several decades. And, it you know, atrial fibrillation has been a rapidly moving target uh, population. Even 20 years ago, the vast majority of patients with atrial fibrillation were treated medically um, with all kinds of medications to make sure that their heart doesn't speed up too much or what we call rate control medications or with blood thinners at the time. But as the treatment for atrial fibrillation has evolved and progressed and we can now offer patients a potential, you know, I hate to say cure, but at least significantly impact the course of the disease uh, and and uh, prevent atrial fibrillation from recurring for long periods of time. And some patients may even be, you know, never even have atrial fibrillation again with the more newer treatment methods. The timing of referral to electrophysiology has been changing. You know, in the past, it was sort of a last resort uh, consultation. You know, if the internist, uh, many of them who are comfortable treating atrial fibrillation, you know, wasn't um, wasn't making any progress or a patient remained symptomatic, and then they were sent to a cardiologist who, again, used all the traditional means of controlling heart rate or shock the patient back in a normal rhythm. And if that didn't work, you know, then they were sent to an electrophysiologist for consultation um, to see if they may or may not be a candidate for ablation. And unfortunately, oftentimes that's kind of too late in the disease process. So what we would encourage physicians to do is refer patients with atrial fibrillation early in the disease process, you know, basically soon after diagnosis to figure out what's the best pathway, what's the best treatment strategy for that particular patient. I mean, not every patient is different. You know, many times you will just say, you know what, let's try to control the risk factors and adopt the wait and see approach. But many times we miss the best time to do a potentially curative procedure. There have been more recent trials that have shown that if we treat patients with, with an ablation procedure, for instance, that we can delay progression of the disease, even halt progression of disease, and, and prevent many of the future you know, comorbidities associated with atrial fibrillation. So right now in, in 2023, I would recommend that anybody who's been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation should at least have a conversation with an electrophysiologist once the basic workup has been done, you know, making sure that their thyroid function is okay, that they don't have a major, uh, you know, had a heart attack or a major heart problem or, you know, after, you know, basic cardiac evaluation, I think they all deserve at least a consultation or, or a conversation with an electrophysiologist. So how do you determine which patients may be helped more by medication management versus those who may need a catheter or surgical ablation? That's a very good question. I would say we have to find an individual 
approach to every patient. And obviously somebody who is very active is, you know, 60 years old and suddenly can't run that much or has, you know, is tired all the time because he, he or she's in atrial fibrillation is very different from the you know, 89-year-old patient who has had a bout of atrial fibrillation. Uh, we really have to weigh the risks and benefits of our treatment approach to that respective patient. So, for instance, um, we look at what are the chances um, that we can maintain atrial fibrillation long-term. You know, if they have significant comorbidities that are not controlled and a lot of risk factors that are not controlled, uh, then maybe those patients are best managed with what we call rate control and anticoagulation or stroke prevention so that we don't expose those patients unnecessarily to an invasive procedure. However, if the chances of restoring and maintaining a normal heart rhythm are good, which a lot of patients fit that profile, especially if they present relatively early in the disease process, then those patients may be better managed with a more aggressive approach, including catheter ablation of atrial fibrillation. Um, our guidelines give us a lot of leeway and, and invasive procedure to potentially cure atrial fibrillation have, have been more widely accepted. In the past, we have said they have to have failed a, a trial of an antiarrhythmic drug. Uh, nowadays, we give the patient sometimes the option to go straight to an ablation procedure and if that's the patient's preference or if, if, if that's what they want. And it's, it involves always a shared decision process. Um, really, I see my role as, as making sure the patient understands the different management strategies. And then we discuss, you know, what, what's the best treatment approach for that particular patient. Uh, nothing's off the table. You know, I, I think we have many tools to treat atrial fibrillation and ablation is one of them. And, and I'd like to offer that to the most patients that I can. So in a situation where a patient is determined to benefit from a catheter-based ablation, how do you determine whether that patient should receive a cryoablation or a radiofrequency ablation? Well, uh, those are both of them good choices. We have a third one, which is laser ablation, and now we have a fourth one, which is what we call a non-thermal approach that does not involve heating or cooling or freezing the heart tissue. Um, there, there are a variety of factors. For instance, Cryoablation, where we freeze a little part of the heart that's critical to maintaining or initiating atrial fibrillation, um, requires um, a small little balloon, and that technique or technology is very straightforward and very safe, but it can only isolate the pulmonary veins. So if that patient has any other arrhythmia that we know of, for instance, something called atrial flutter, then we would need to go to a second method uh, or tools such as radiofrequency to ablate the atrial flutters. And we don't like to use and mix and match too many methods or tools in the same procedure because that just complicates the procedure. So in that patient, I might just use radiofrequency from the get-go. Um, if it's a straightforward AFib ablation with no other arrhythmias involved or a first procedure, it really comes down to, I think, physician preference and what they're most comfortable with, which tool they're most comfortable with. All the standard tools like radiofrequency, laser, or cryoballoon uh, have been shown to be safe and effective, have a very comparable efficacy rate of around 80% for a single procedure. Um, and, and really, it comes down to the comfort level and what, what 
you know which tools uh, the the physician is is most you know familiar with or most comfortable with you know as as an experienced electrophysiologist you know we've we can use most tools um and we just determine based on whether or not it's a straightforward afib ablation whether there are additional you know, targets that we need to address during the procedure, um, what we're going to use. Also, if it's a second ablation or a third ablation, most electrophysiologists will go to radiofrequency ablation, which offers most flexibility in terms of determining where we're going, what we're doing, uh, what, what our target is going to be. Is there a limit on the number of ablations a patient could receive? Technically, no. Um, but you know, in terms, I mean, each procedure is a separate procedure. Uh, each procedure is a certain, just like when you have coronary artery disease with multiple blockages in multiple arteries, you know, some people will have had 10 stents or 12 stents placed and, you know, over the course of 10, 20 years. Similar with, with atrial fibrillation, you know, people can develop different mechanisms for the arrhythmia, and so they may require different ablations throughout the decades. Uh, I think there is certainly a limit in the sense of what makes sense. You know, what what is it... Uh, for that particular patient, if if I've tried two or three ablations and and you know I see that there are no good targets left, um, then I think it's time to discuss different management strategies and say, well, maybe ablation is not for you, or the 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 you know outcome of another ablation is unlikely to change the course of your disease, um, and and look at, at at alternatives. One thing I was curious about in preparing for our conversation today was thinking about patients who have asymptomatic AFib um, and how you approach the use of ablation to treat those patients. Um, another excellent question. So in the past, you know, atrial fibrillation, we, we, or we only treated basically atrial fibrillation if it caused symptoms. Um, and, um, you know, if it caused any kind of other comorbidities like heart failure or something like that. Asymptomatic patients, it's much more difficult to to assess, you know, what's the best treatment approach for that particular patient. Um, unfortunately, atrial fibrillation causes problems, whether it's symptomatic or not. So um, the, the dilemma is that early on, patients may have no symptoms um, but they still can develop um, heart failure down the road or have a higher incidence of stroke, um, even if they have no symptoms of the actual atrial fibrillation. They don't feel their heart being out of rhythm. But many of those patients go on after you know six months or a year or two years to be short of breath or more tired, or there's has been shown there's a higher risk of dementia, there's a higher risk of strokes, there's a higher mortality long-term if you have atrial fibrillation, at least if you have a significant burden of atrial fibrillation. I'm not talking about the patient who has one episode a year for an hour. I'm talking about the patient who has quite a bit of it. Um, so unfortunately, if we wait in these patients, you know, until they become symptomatic, then, then the success of, for instance, an ablation procedure is much lower after a certain time. So we might miss that golden hour of treatment uh, option or cure option in this patient. So if I if I see a patient who has no symptoms, I do have to discuss with him that even though you don't feel it now, you know, you might 
you might feel it or it might cause problems, you know, in two, three or four years down the road. But at that point, it's going to be too late to get you back in a normal rhythm and to keep you in a normal rhythm. So outside of ablation, can we talk about some other non-pharmacologic avenues for stroke prevention with left atrial appendage occlusion devices, um, such as the Watchman device? So first of all, I want to I want to step back one minute and say we're so fortunate for the past ten years that we have had other blood thinners than the good old warfarin or coumadin that we used for many 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 decades, and that was really difficult to manage in many patients because it interfered with their diet. It required frequent blood tests, um, and even though it's been shown to be very effective in stroke prevention, we always had a hard time getting more than. 60% of patients properly anticoagulated with warfarin. Uh, so about 10, 15 years ago, we've got many other new blood thinners um, on the market, which are pills that do not require you know, constant monitoring and do not interfere with your diet. So we have a lot more options and they're probably also safer uh, than, than some of the older blood thinners. So we do have many options. Now, in addition to that, um, there is what we call a non-pharmacologic approach to, to stroke prevention. We do know that most strokes come from the left atrial appendage, a little structure in the upper chambers, uh, in the left upper chamber of the heart where blood tends to pool and clot and you know, can fly off into the circulation, into the brain. So we found out that if we somehow obliterate that little left atrial appendage, um, then we can prevent most strokes almost as or as effectively as using blood thinners. And so there are a variety of tools to do that. There are surgical approaches. There is uh, something where you ligate um, the, the left atrial appendage uh, with the lariat approach, you know, which is a minimally invasive procedure. And then there are little gadget that we can place into that left atrial appendage, the most common ones being the Watchman device, um, but also Amulet device and other companies are coming with similar approaches. The idea being that we're going to plug that, the entrance to that appendage and within a few weeks they get sealed off building a membrane on top of it. And so if that procedure is pretty straightforward um, and, you know, takes about half an hour to an hour and it's done again through a catheter-based approach and in patients who cannot take blood thinners long-term it's a it's a great alternative to prevent strokes and are there any other newer non-pharmacologic treatment strategies that are also being researched at the current time Yes, uh, and actually, at Rush, we are about to embark on on, on a trial. Um, I think in the React AF trial. Um, now, with the uh, occurrence of smartwatches and other monitoring devices, uh, the idea is that maybe some of the low risk patients do not need to take blood thinners long term and still have a low risk of stroke. Um, and just take it basically only on an as needed basis. So how that would how that would work is that you know if a patient, for instance, wears a smartwatch that can detect atrial fibrillation, uh, they would alert us or let us know if they have an episode, for instance, longer than an hour, and then they would take the blood thinner only um, you know for like thirty days after such an episode. 
And there's some preliminary data that suggests that that's a safe approach and that we can reduce the time the patient is taking blood thinners by over 90%, so that they're basically only taking blood thinners for short periods of time if they have had a recurrence. Again, these are newer strategies. Uh, you know, the studies will tell us you know, on a larger scale whether um, that will work and whether that's safe to do. Uh, but it's kind of an exciting new era of, of you know, modern medicine and modern monitoring technology um, that can hopefully prevent complications due to blood thinners. Do you think there's overall acceptance within the electrophysiology community about the benefits of using a smartwatch or a smart device for patients to monitor their AFib symptoms, or do you think there are diverging opinions within the community about them? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's it's there's a mix there. I mean, most electrophysiologists I talk to are excited about this approach. Obviously, we are relying on patient compliance to wear the monitor to notify us if they if they if they have an, a prolonged episode and and then go along with the treatment plan. Uh, but patient compliance it's always an issue, no matter how you treat them. Um, and you know, I think most electrophysiologists we, we are excited about the opportunities that these smartwatches that are widely available offer us in terms of managing these patients long-term. Uh, you know, some of them have been FDA-approved to detect atrial fibrillation. Uh, they're, they're quite sensitive and reliable. Um, and I do believe that they're going to change how we practice, um, you know, in, in, in many ways, you know, both to document, you know, the effectiveness of whatever treatment approach we use, also to prevent strokes down the road. But again, we, we're lacking large-scale trials, um, but the, the preliminary data are promising. So I've got one last question for you today, which is about pulsed field ablation or PFA technology. Can you talk about how soon they'll be able to be used in practice at Rush and what the potential benefits for patients will be. Well, we are getting ready to use it here at Rush. Um, it's been uh, pretty much experimental and part of, of trials only. Um, so Pulse Felix technology, it's, it's very exciting. Um, it is a what we call non-thermal ablation method or, or tool. So instead of destroying tissue with uh, heating it or, or you know, freezing it and, and then having an inf inflammation, uh, this causes what we call electroporation in a very circumscribed region and can create very safely uh, very effective ablation lesions that are transmural, meaning that they affect the whole thickness of the heart if needed, which is key to long-term success, at least in AFib ablation. Um, so it's it's an exciting new technology. Um, all the preliminary data that, that we have seen uh, show that it is it is very safe to use. It can potentially avoid collateral damage to other tissues, surrounding tissue. When we do ablations, that's one thing we're concerned about always. You know, if you heat the tissue, there's always some heat that transmits to the adjacent tissue and could potentially cause problems. Uh, with this form of non-thermal energy, we can destroy tissue and create a, a scar that's well-defined and does not affect any uh, surrounding tissues, not causing any collateral damage or potential collateral damage. Um, there's still a few things that we're trying to figure out, you know, what's the best protocol, you know, technique. Uh, there are a lot of, very, you know, 
physical or physics variable that that can be altered to to use this effectively. Uh, Cathars are in development to effectively deliver this new form of energy. But uh, generally in the electrophysiology community is, is, is very excited about having a new uh, very safe treatment method for ablations. Um, in terms of long-term effectiveness, you know, the jury's still out. Um, I think it's going to be at least as effective as all the other tools that we have right now. It's potentially safer, and that's already half the game. So we're excited about it. And so how close are we to implementing that in actual care? We are, we're hopefully going to start using uh, PFA um, in, in the next few months at Rush. Um, as I said, it's still usually part of a protocol um, until we gather more data. So it's, it's happening as we speak. Well, Dr. Engelstein, um, thank you so much for our conversation today and the interesting work that we're doing with AFib Care at Rush. Yeah, thank you very much for um, you know, talking to me and I'm really looking forward to seeing more patients with atrial fibrillation. <laughs>